My name is Dan Brown, and I'm here today again with another Lens on Information Architect. Sure. Uh, today I get to talk to Sid Harrell. Sid, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Dan. It's good to see you. It's so nice to see you. I think the last time we saw each other was Lisbon. That sounds at, about right. You were 2018? In, yeah. Yeah. You and I were speaking at UX Lisbon, and the person who went before us went very long. Do you oh, remember that? I do remember that. And I think I was next and then you. Right. And I was, I had this whole song and dance uh, planned out, but I was really nervous because I didn't want to cut into your time either. I believe but, you very, very graciously ate up most of the overage in your talk. <laughs> and I, I got to talk about civic tech, which was like the weird talk at that particular conference. It was, so that was fun. Oh yeah. Like I'm going to yeah. show up in Lisbon and talk about civic tech. Um, yeah, that was, that was something that really, um, I've rarely seen that. Yes. Um, well, it's nice to see you in a much less stressful, uh, environment here. Um, so, uh, you said you're mostly doing research these days and I'm really interested in collaboration. I'm like, how do we, how do we design as a, uh, and, and user experience is a collaborative process. So I've been asking everyone, what are your favorite techniques? What are your favorite sort of go-to uh, approaches to drawing other folks into that research process? How do you, how do you expose other members of the team to the research right. that you're doing? So that's a fantastic question. Of course, the classic is bringing people along um, on the sessions, which is both easier and harder if you're in a quarantine and can't say visit a courthouse lobby to find people who are waiting to file an action. Um, but uh, the thing I think people sometimes miss is including everyone in the synthesis sessions, um, which takes being really confident about your synthesis methods. Um, but I find that the more you can include not just partners from the technology team. Um, I find it pretty easy to bring in product managers and engineers, but uh, because I work mostly in government, uh, we're talking about let's bring the lawyers in, um, let's bring the policy folks in, and you know, let's hold a synthesis that allows them to participate, feel like they own the research. Um, so that means sometimes taking slightly slower and more facilitated synthesis methods than we might. Um, I actually am inclined, uh, probably because I work on often moderately deep issues to, to less sort of just, hey, let's do a KJ and you know shift our post-it notes around, um, but to things that help us get at the metaphors that participants express and the metaphors we as a team come up with as we talk about what we saw um, and working through story pieces and so forth. And that's usually, that's usually pretty distant from how policy or law people work. Um, so um, taking the time to set the stage for what you're gonna do and keep people comfortable through the process of doing something that feels very far off from how they work. Um, so I guess, you know, intermediate to advanced facilitation skills are one thing I end up deploying a lot in uh, the process of getting collaborative research done. Uh, you talked about the two things I want to follow up on. Let's start with the making people comfortable kind of in kind of uncomfortable activities. What is, maybe you can give us an example of what that looks like. Would that be all right? Yeah. Um, I think it, you know, it, it often looks like advanced warning and, you know, I call it on myself. I'm like, Hey, I'm coming from California here. 
<laughs> and I'm going to be embracing some California woo. And, you know, I want you to remember that this is a really qualitative process. And we all saw together, for example, you know, that Georgia, this participant, um, talked through some really significant emotions about the divorce that her wife filed on her by surprise. Um, we're going to look to get the most out of what she shared with us and to honor that by, you know, talking respectfully about where we had feelings and what we did with that. And it's, it's not going to feel like a numbers process because we have the numbers. We can get those. We're trying to build on what we have in the numbers and do more. And so I'm going to ask you to do a couple things that may feel a little weird. I hope they'll also be fun. And, um, you're going to see that in the course of an hour or so, they're going to bring us to a point where we can make some clear statements that we feel pretty good about, but that are still really qualitative. I love that. I mean, it's sort of like, it's a best practice of just sort of, here's what we're going to do today, right? Just sort of like, <laughs> but, and yet it's kind of easy to forget those things when uh, you do it time and again, right? You do it, yeah. you do it a lot, or you do it the same sorts of people, right? It becomes very easy to kind of put those things uh, aside, but those become even more important, not just to set everyone's expectations, but I think you're saying it makes it makes them comfortable. It creates a safe space for them to participate. Yeah. And they sort of know what the rules are. There's one talk I gave where I contrast um, Willy Wonka and the Wizard of Oz in terms of whether they kept their promises. (laughs) And basically, (laughs) right, you know, both of these people are from kind of gray worlds and they get transported into these really colorful worlds. And in the Wizard of Oz, everything goes haywire and Dorothy has to be the hero herself. And it turns out the guy's a charlatan at the end. And, you know, she's just like, forget it. I'm going back to the gray world. I love it. And if you think about Wonka, he he's an asshole, but he also keeps all his promises and he does what he said. And at the end, even if you messed up and got sent down a chute full of chocolate or whatever, you go home with your truck full of chocolate and Charlie gets the factory. So like be Wonka. You're not saying, you're not saying be an asshole. You're saying. I'm not saying be an asshole. I'm saying, yeah. Follow through on your promises. Follow through on your promises. (laughs) Yes. Please don't be an asshole. (laughs) That's one of the top things, right? I mean, come on. In this day and age, there should be, we should not be assholes to each other. Um, The other thing that you mentioned uh, is you said you were, uh, that the the synthesis process is something that you used as kind of, uh, get at the metaphors uh, that either the team is using or your participants have been using. And I wonder if you could give us, share an example of what one of those metaphors looks like. Sure. So actually I'll, I'll use a commercial one from a while ago where um, we were doing a study uh, for a, um, a site where you can research your ancestry. Um, and I had more people cry in that study than I've had in studies about new cancer patients, about like, you know, like people found something really, really upsetting about it. And, um, because, um, they would reach a point in the process where it would be like, okay, you're getting close. We found a courthouse picture of your great, great grandmother, 20 bucks right now. And people would hit that point and, and freak out. And they, several of them said, it's just like, there's this wall in my face. And, you know, that's a metaphor. When it turned out that when we, when we called the team back to the project brief, we said, you know, you said you're getting a lot of abandons at the paywall. People are really feeling your paywall as a wall and they're telling us. And so, you know, it's a simple metaphor, but let's think about 
what walls mean, how walls can be constructed, um, what different kinds of walls there may be, and how you might want to set that up to make it feel like not a wall immediately in your face when you weren't expecting it, but a wall that people can see that they have options to get through. Um, and it was just enormously effective for the people who observed those sessions to go like, oh, head smack. We've, we've built our wall wrong. Okay, we can fix the wall. So is the value of the metaphor there, um, the value of the metaphor in that particular case was it uh, helped you understand how users were feeling as they proceeded through the process. Did I get that um, right? Yeah, I think it, it helps observers and researchers understand the visceral piece of the experience. Um, another one that I remember very strongly is when we had some kind of sign-up process and uh, the company had just tons of emails and surveys and stuff that they sent. And the participant said, you know, I feel like I agreed to go to coffee and this company's proposing marriage. It's like really creepy. <laughs> and you, you see, I saw you nod and be like, oh God, I understand that experience immediately, right? Because you and I are members of a shared language community that that participant was also part of. And you know, we know these values of coffee as a very early relationship step and relationship is, uh, marriage is very late and. <laughs> right, oh. right. Oh, that's so, so it's way more effective than like, well, 10% of the people said they weren't comfortable with this. It's richer. Right. And through those metaphors, it, it seems like you create bridges between the participants and uh, and the things that you're finding there and these other stakeholders who are not necessarily yeah. as directly related to the research process. Exactly. Okay, cool. So um, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to have these conversations is I myself am going through this sort of uh, process, even at this late stage in my career of realizing I, a lot of things I take for granted in the practice of user experience and all the disciplines that it entails are rest on some assumptions and uh, we need to question some of those assumptions. So, I mean, I'd be curious to hear from you if you were to take a new lens to, to research specifically, or maybe any aspect of user experience, is there one aspect of user research uh, or user experience in general or the design process that you think we need to take a new lens to that we need to examine more closely. What assumptions need unpacking? I have to pick one. Um, <laughs> I think for me, I mean, you know, and this is this is one I have spent the last ten years or so questioning and and seeing if I can shift um, is the idea that we're always designing for a customer and that that specific relationship is the one that is most important in research or design. Um, and that's because I work in the civic space. So people are something more and sometimes less than what a customer means to a business. And their motivations are different and their desires are different. And um, that's actually true of a lot of commercial things too, but because we have this really strong signal and whether they buy something or whether they sign up or whether they do something that the business wants in a business goal, it's easy to ignore a lot of the other aspects of people's humanity. And I think shifting that would be really cool. Yeah, that's fascinating. I like, I like how you put it um, that uh, customers, send strong signals, right? They they make a purchase 
where they uh, they sign up for something. And it almost sounds like you're saying that those strong signals kind of drown out some of the other maybe more nuanced things that we could be hearing or gleaning from users of our system. They often do, and especially in the last 10 years as we've gotten better and better at sort of formalizing those signals and shaping our designs so that we collect those signals pretty aggressively. Um, you know, if you think about the experience where you uh, you buy something inconsequential, I don't know, maybe you need a new muffin pan, and you get a survey like five minutes later to ask how excited you were about the experience of buying a muffin pan, because they need that data to figure out how to tweak something. Like, there's a lot of designers involved in doing that. It sucks for the person experiencing it. And like, it doesn't take any account of what place the muffin pan probably has in your life, you know? Right. I mean, right? yeah. I mean, I mean, just to be upfront, there's nothing inconsequential about my buying a muffin pan. If I'm buying a muffin pan, it is very important. But I think you're also saying I might be buying it for someone else, in which case I don't really want to answer all of these questions uh, about it, right? Or engage with whoever sold it to me in this way, because this is not, I'm, I'm not the ultimate user of this product that I'm, right. that I'm buying. And you might actually bake muffins like every week for somebody that you kind of resent and you wish you didn't need a muffin pan. And so, I mean, <laughs> by the way, we're getting all metaphorical here, but <laughs> you know, then when you get into really life critical areas, like, is my court case going to go through? Um, and, you know, one of the really interesting things that working in the courts for the last three years has taught me is that uh, the one-sided relationships between a business and a customer don't really analogize very well to the relationship between somebody who wants to do something via a court where another party is necessarily going to be involved. It's, it's, it's almost hard to even conceptualize certain court things as services. I mean, I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit. So now, so you're saying uh, the we, we need to, to revisit this idea uh, that uh, every user is a customer, every customer is a user, right? And, right. That, and that there's that sort of underlying That's assumption. That's the one aspect of people that we're engaging with, right? Right. And but and your your involvement with civic design is exposing uh, the limitations of yes. that of that yes. Uh, yes. assumption. And I think, you know, until 2018, I was involved with executive branch civic design, where a lot of what you do is a closer analogy. I need a benefit. I need to get a permit. I need to do a thing. It's just not commercial. But now that I've been working with courts, um, so, you know, let's say I'm going to sue you um, because <laughs> I don't know why, but I want to bring a small claim suit against you. Um, the only way that I really win that is if I win the case. Um, it, but then you automatically lose. And so there's no way that the court really can satisfy both of us as users. There's a whole bunch of alternative things that could happen too. You and I could decide to settle. I could be like, send me 20 bucks down and I'll call it good. Um, and we could make an agreement like that. And we might be both be satisfied with that, but that actually then has taken it out of the realm of the court's action and put it back between us. But the state probably still considers it a good outcome because we didn't take up the court's time and we settled our thing. So the, the complexity of outcomes and goals and needs there um, works very differently and isn't as linear as 
the funnels and conversions that we often think about, even if we're doing like regular government services. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. So tell me if, to stop, uh, if, if, uh, this question is unfair, but I'm, I'm sort of genuinely curious about, uh, even if it were not right or perfect, what would you replace the customer model with? What is, what is maybe a better, I mean, we've talked about metaphors. What's a better metaphor for us to be sort of not, uh, to, to retreat to instead of this kind of commerce transactional, uh, type model, which we're trying to make everything, as you say, court you know, court cases fit into that model. Is there another sort of reasonably good starting point that you would suggest? I think the thing is there isn't one. And I think what we need to do is expand beyond one. So I might be a customer. I might be acting as a citizen, in which case I'm going to take things differently. Um, I might be acting uh, as a, um, a person who believes I'm injured. Um, I might be acting as a person in a difficult relationship, trying to get a family law thing taken care of. Um, and there are a narrow few use cases where it's okay to keep it at the customer level. But for so many things, um, we need to know more. And I think that allows us to expand more beyond the sort of, you know, the customer, of course, is an idealized dominant person who can afford things. Um, and lots of businesses want to optimize toward the person who can afford more things because right. hey, they'll get more money out of them. And um, really thinking about just a person, a human, and thinking about the circumstances. So, uh, you know, why am I at the court? There's a couple right. of joy joyous cases, right? Um, maybe I've been transitioning and it's finally time to change my name. Like that's a joyous occasion for going to court. Um, but maybe I need a restraining order. Maybe my car mechanic has screwed me. Um, and in, you know, in those circumstances, really thinking about um, what, what powers do I have? Who am I in that situation? Um, really what at the base is my need, not a made up one, but, you know, uh, I need to, be treated decently by my mechanic because without my car that really impacts my life and I can't afford the money that they cheated me out of. So we're getting to some pretty crunchy fundamental issues that are actually deeper in our, our humanity than our desire for cool products, which is super real and, and, you know, great to work on. Um, and you know, thinking of us as community members, right. as people who exercise power, who exercise rights um, as citizens. And I use that advisedly because it's not a, um, it's not an unproblematic word, right? When you're talking about national citizenship, but it, it carries a, uh, an implication of activity that words like resident sometimes don't. Um, so, you know, I, if I ask us to step back and ask who the person is and what role they're playing in the situation, rather than just sort of assuming user as customer, it's kind of like uh, to talk about another standard artifact, like user journeys, um, I often get a little bit of an issue with because of the way that that word implies salience. Um, and exactly what we just talked about with the muffin pan, that, that is a big deal and very salient to you. Um, but maybe there's something else like a pencil 
well, you're a designer, so not a pencil, but there's probably something you buy that isn't super important to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. um, I always talk about, you know, I bought a pair of socks and I'm getting a whole bunch of surveys asking me how excited I am about socks and, you know, getting me through my sock journey. And for me, the sock thing feels more like a commute or <laughs> some other travel related word, if we're going to put a travel related word on it, but in, in adopting sort of this idea that it's a customer and it's a journey, um, we're putting a lot of assumptions about the power relations, the activity, um, how salient it is to the person participating that are not always justified. This is really good stuff. I mean, what it's making me think of is um, a lot of the um, frameworks that we've come up with to uh, imagine uh, the relationship between a user and a product, a user and a, a, a digital service, just to be as broad as possible. Um, we kind of keep mixing up those frameworks, right? So a journey might might make sense with something like a court case, which is yeah. there is a lot of back and forth. There is a lot of downtime. There is a lot of anxiety. and But a journey doesn't necessarily make sense when you're buying a pair of socks. And if I, as a designer, bring that framework to the table in an inappropriate context, then I'm going to maybe manufacture an experience that is inappropriate for what I'm trying to do, that our choice of those frameworks is, is almost as meaningful as the choice, the design choices uh, that we make in the, in the product or the service itself. Yes. Yes. That is extremely well said. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. No, thank you. Didn't even occur to me to say that until you um, until you walked walked through some of your thinking there. Um, uh, I mean, even even the idea of um, transactions is so built into how we design uh, yeah. these things. Um, and sometimes I'll use the word uh, mediate that the the service that we're designing or the product that we're designing is really a, a tool for mediating between people. And even that feels, I think, uncomfortable for the for the team where people are trying to think in a more, or they're, they've been taught to think in a more transactional way, rather than- Turn a light on, the light is getting a little weird in here, let sure, me know. Sure, sure, <laughs> it looks, looks great. Okay. Um, anyway, um, so I, I, you, you mentioned 2018, like as a pivotal moment, because that it sounds like you switched from um, the executive branch to the judicial branch yeah. uh, stuff. Where, where would you say in your career, um uh did you sense that there was a need to closely examine our practice um i actually think uh you know i used to work at bolt peters which uh probably nobody knows about anymore but was a pretty cool little research shop that had a really wide practice and punched above its weight and um seeing that breadth of practice there as i was starting to get interested in civic stuff in my last couple of years there before it was bought and went out of business. Um, the shift to civic, I have about five stories I tell about how it happened, but a lot of them have to do with exactly this. You know, that, oh, why have I never thought of designing the way that I make a complaint to the government? Why have I never thought that was even within the realm of design? What does that mean? <laughs> um, and uh, there's one story I tell that's about 
my kid was seven, uh, driving through Golden Gate Park in San Francisco on a super foggy summer morning and seeing the sprinklers being on and the kid being like, mommy, that's wasting water. You know, she's been getting all this education about green stuff. And she's like, can't we do something? And I'm like, oh, no, probably. Um, but she's like, but we have to. And I'm like, oh no, what do I do? Um, and I finally realized that I hear that SF311 has gotten a Twitter account. And I'm wondering if you're, oh no, that wasn't a puppy. That was a light. <laughs> um, no, this, and, this, this is the puppy. Oh, and I can. Yep. I've, I've, been, oh, I've, been, I've been given response. I'm sorry to interrupt our conversation, but. Not at all. The dogs are a great interruption. Owning, owning a puppy has been uh, very challenging for us. So I think the folks upstairs need a little bit of a break. A break. So here we yeah. are. So, so anyway, yeah. So just a, being able to send, I sent a tweet to this SF311 on Twitter saying like, you know, these sprinklers are on when they shouldn't be. And so that I felt like I'd, I'd performed my commitment to my daughter and like I went on with my day. And then I got a message back, said, thank you. And we're going to take care of this. And here's a little ticket number you can check on tomorrow. And I was like, wait, <laughs> you know, and I, I knew, right. I'm a UX person. I was like, I just had a transformative experience in some way. What happened there? I wasn't expecting anything back. I wasn't really expecting that I could affect what happened and why wouldn't I have, and why wouldn't I have thought that there could be a service design there? And um, so, you know, that really rocked me on my heels and made me question a lot of assumptions about what we weren't thinking about in UX and go and start spending a couple of years trying to get myself into Code for America, which was kind of the place you could go here and do some of this, and then hear what city officials and, and folks who'd been working on this for a long time were contending with that I didn't have answers for from a commercial UX background immediately and start working on them. I love that the transformation was not even in the career portion of your life, but in the personal <laughs> portion of your life, where it was yeah. like, you had this experience. And that got you thinking, wait a minute, I'm not a customer here. I'm something else. And I'm having an, this kind right. of interaction. And I don't know any designers that works for cities. That's kind of weird. Oh, yeah. So at the time, you know, there were there were a few, and I got to know them all. And now there are hundreds and it's so cool. Right. Yeah, it is cool. It is cool. Um, I, so the dog's head is upside down. Yeah, he's very <laughs> floppy. So cute. He's sort of, he's, he's shaped a bit like a hairpin right now. He's sort of bent around, <laughs> but he's quiet. Yeah. I'm afraid if I can find him, he will That's all good. disrupt this interview in a not positive way. So I, I love yeah. that he's here. Right now it's a positive disruption. Yes. One of the preconceptions that I carry around with me uh, as an information architect uh, or the assumptions I think that I carry around with me is that I can create a structure. I can design a meaningful structure, uh, whether it's a navigation category or a means, a menu uh, or, uh, you know, a set of uh, related links, like I can design a structure uh, that's a model for categorizing things, for example. And I wonder if you might help me um, unpack that assumption a little bit. Uh, how might I 
what are some of the personal biases that I might be bringing to the table? What are some of the the uh, baggage uh, that I might be carrying that sort of uh, would would prevent me from seeing this in a new way? Can I legitimately design structures for other people? I mean, I do think you can, and I think you will do it much, much better if you get a really good understanding of how those people think about the structures. If they think that is a structure, um, I'm also hearing, you know, and hearing you talk about it, it's very web sounding, right? So um, the structure of a side menu <laughs> fits in really one type of media. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the assumption that everything fits in one place is one that really uh, starts to feel like a constraint when you're working in that more, um, more flexible or, I mean, it's rigid in a number of ways, but, but more complicated terrain of something that isn't a direct service. Um, interesting. Yeah, no, those yeah, those are, those are those are great. I mean, I, I think I think just um, the the uh, even just the framing of this as uh, a menu is, or navigation is kind of a set of categories where things fit, right? I think is um, we often maybe we'll use the the uh, metaphor of wayfinding instead, right? Yeah. Signposts, um, but even that I think has some assumptions baked into it uh, of. Um, this idea of directionality or hierarchy, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm sort of now at a point. It's useful. Where... It's just not everything necessarily. Right. 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 Yeah. I came across a really interesting model a couple of months ago um, by this guy, Steven Anderson, talking about uh, game design and talking about arcs, loops and terrain. Do you know, are you familiar with this one? Yes. Do you, have you met Steven? No. Oh yeah, he's he's uh, a stalwart participant in the IA conference. Uh, awesome. so he, he and I go way back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what, so, tell me about what you read. Uh, it was a, a fairly recent piece about adapting uh, this idea that you know that there's we don't have to design a journey. We can work on these shorter loops and these longer arcs, but also we can design the terrain in which all this takes place, which is really applicable to game design, but really resonated with me as far as the legal system and thinking about it as a terrain in which you might need to do a bunch of stuff and someone else's actions might trigger you to need to do something else. Um, and thinking about what, uh, you know, yes, you need wayfinding, but that's not all you need. Maybe you need the, there not to be a volcano there. Can we do anything about that? <laughs> right? uh, or you do need obstacles, right? You do, you do want to yeah. understand, uh, what you're about to do is a very complex process. Are you sure you want to go through it or what you want, what, what you're trying to achieve um, comes with a lot of bureaucracy, right? Are you sure right. that this is, uh, do you, do you have an understanding of what it means to scale a volcano essentially? Yeah. And you know, some of that is, it, it's really interesting working with lawyers. One of the first things we said is, can we give people any expectations about how long X kind of case takes? Um, and they said, absolutely not because we might be wrong. And that, that's, you know, that's in many ways, the worst thing is being inaccurate, um, especially when you're speaking for a court system. So uh, 
you know, we have, we worked our way around over three years to where we maybe could say, yeah, a divorce will take a minimum of six months and usually longer. But that was, that was really tough because accuracy is such a strong value. And uh, another unquestioned assumption in a way that you think, okay, well, you know, I might be inaccurate and therefore I can't provide the 90% information to most of the people with a little caveat because I might be wrong. And therefore you leave out really helpful information for a lot of people. Right. There's this other kind of underlying assumption and maybe this comes more with civic tech than it does with say commercial stuff is uh, an emphasis on accuracy. And um, uh, because uh, you you want to set people's expectation, you, it matters. Setting yeah. people's expectation matters right. there. Yeah. Um, Sid, this was amazing. Thank you for putting up with my puppy and my disruption. And thank you for the really interesting conversation. It was really great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. I could go on for hours about this stuff, as you can probably tell. <laughs> I might call you back then. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs>